Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we are going to get started with the reign of the first sovereign worthy of the title in quite a while. Ahmad ibn Talha spent a significant portion of his childhood on campaign alongside his father, the great Abbasid general. This military upbringing shaped his character and led him to build enduring relationships with the officers serving in the caliphate's armies. They helped him ascend to his uncle's position, and he proved to be one of the most effective Abbasids to ever rule the Ummah. Episode 78 Al-Mu'tadid I am thrilled we finally have an assertive figure back in the throne. Having a unifying perspective to ground the discussion simplifies matters considerably and makes for some easy storytelling. In situations like this, it becomes doubly important not to abandon nuance or else we could wind up blindly celebrating some larger-than-life persona. Narrations in our sources fall into that trap at times. Many are clearly infatuated with Al-Mu'tadid and his iron-fisted reign, which is understandable given the quality of Abbasid leadership the Ummah had endured in recent years. While this caliph is a little too soldierly for my liking, there's no arguing with results. He nurtured the Abbasid revival his father had begun, and it blossomed under his watchful care. It's a little too much to take in over a single session, so we'll split our discussion up to give this caliph the room he deserves. Today's discussion will be on introducing the new administration and describing al-Mu'tadid's actions in and around Iraq. We'll leave distant Egypt and Khurasan for next time. Let's begin with our conventional caliph intro. It's believed that Ahmad ibn Talha was born before the anarchy in Samarra though it's unclear exactly when. Talha was barely 18 when it started in 861, so his son couldn't have been born too much earlier, let's say 859. As we've already determined, this was a terrible time for the Abbasids and the people of Iraq more generally, so Ahmad probably grew up in relative austerity. Talha's political potential didn't make things any easier and his family would have been subjected to even more restrictions than other Abbasids. Ahmad was around 11 years old when everything changed. His uncle became caliph, and his father took charge of their clan's floundering empire. Since oral narrations typically ignore children altogether, we don't have a ton of compelling material about Ahmad and his dad, just some passing mentions of Junior's presence here and there. Ahmad's first command was as defender of Samarra when his father took the bulk of the armies to face off against Yaqub al-Saffar outside Baghdad in 876. He didn't see any action then, and the commission was more ceremonial than anything, meant to boost his profile as a Abbasid. Three years later, 
Ahmad led a successful campaign of his own against the rebels from Basra. His patient, tactical approach and his pragmatism both went a long way towards turning the tide in this fight. Instead of assaulting them gung-ho, his painstakingly slow advance gave his foes no gaps to exploit for an ambush. He followed up this frustrating tactic by offering the first amnesties we read about in our sources, something which led to bitter divisions among rebel ranks. Unfortunately for Ahmad, he couldn't replicate his success in Egypt a few years later. In 884, a year after Ibn Tulun had passed away, Ahmad was sent to join two minor governors, Ibn Abi Saj and Ibn Kundaj, in their assault on the Tulunids. We mentioned this a couple episodes ago, so we won't dwell on it now. The pair had managed to roll the Egyptian dynasty out of Syria and back to Palestine, but there seems to have been a major falling out after Ahmad's arrival. I wish we had more details about why the other commanders abandoned the campaign, but their subsequent feuding suggests that it wasn't entirely about Ahmad. In any case, the battle against Khumarway ibn Tulun didn't go in his favor, and he returned to Iraq empty-handed. Over the next couple years, Ahmad assisted Talha against the Safarids in the east. In 889, something big happened between him and his all-powerful father, and Ahmad was thrown into a dungeon. Again, we're not told what precipitated this unprecedented turn of events. One narration says that when the army's officers begged Talha to reconsider, he replied by saying that they could not possibly love his son more than he did, that he was only doing this for Ahmad's own good. I'd be more inclined to believe him if he had his son confined for a week or so, but Ahmad stayed in there for two whole years, until his father was literally on his deathbed. I can't quite put my finger on it, but narrations about this pair of Abbasids from here on out tend to feel a little iffy, like they're glossing over something. I believe this is because they struggle to report on a period when there was some serious friction between two highly revered figures. Talha saved the Caliphate during an exceptionally dangerous era, and Ahmad restored it to a lost glory. Furthermore, they were father and son, something that amplifies the ugliness of any allusions to cruelty. With this in mind, let's proceed with the passing of the torch from Talha to Ahmad. When Talha's gout advanced to a terminal stage in 891, Ahmad's wardens took it upon themselves to break him out of his captivity. The narration we find in Al-Tabari is pretty dramatic. It tells of a rattled Ahmad, whose first thought was that he was about to be put to death. He drew his sword, somehow with him in his cell, and loudly proclaimed that he wasn't going down without a fight. The truth only dawned on him after he recognized the first man to enter as a Turkish commander, who immediately threw his own sword to the floor in submission. While I still think there's something fishy about the narration, we can be sure that when Talha died in June 891, 
Ahmad was chosen by the armies as his legitimate successor in all things. He wouldn't officially become caliph until al-Mu'tamid passed away in October of 892. But in my opinion, the 16 months between his father's death and his uncle's ought to be considered part of his reign. Let me explain. When I said the armies recognized Talha's son as his legitimate successor in all things, I specifically meant two very important things. Ahmad was now considered the Abbasid steward, ready to take the throne should anything happen to the caliph, and the latest governor of Baghdad. One of Ahmad's first actions was to appoint his most loyal commander, Badr, in charge of Baghdad's security. His political opponents immediately fled the city, and only days later their estates were ransacked by unknown mobs. The wazir is the key senior figure mentioned in these narrations, which makes sense as he was trying desperately to assert the caliph's authority in the wake of Talha's demise. His allies and all officials connected to them were arrested, and the vizier himself was either safely out of reach or right there in prison with them, depending on the narration. Either way, Ahmad's personal secretary, Allah bin Sulaiman, assumed the vizier's responsibilities, effectively freezing al-Mu'tamid out of all state functions. With his men in these positions of authority, it is clear that Ahmad already had de facto control of the caliphate. This aggressive approach quashed the competition, and similar measures were taken in other sectors of society as well. Public discussion of these maneuvers was forbidden in Baghdad, and kalam or rhetoric was banned, as was the sale of any books on philosophy. Many narrations depict this stifling of the civil sphere in a positive manner, as the imposition of much-needed order, for example. This interference in public discourse and debate is probably a part of why narrations feel kind of stilted around this time. While I was initially disappointed by the way these censorious methods are depicted in our sources, it makes sense when you think about it. This is just what successful propaganda ends up sounding like. Having accomplished de facto control over the caliphate, Ahmad forced his uncle to officially install him as next in line. Al-Mu'tamid passed away in October, barely six months after his succession plans had been revised. We're told the caliph drank so much that he could no longer hold down food and died as a result. I'm honestly shocked that no narrations I came across claim an assassination plot. I mean, it kind of sounds like poison, and his powerful nephew did have a lot to gain. I don't particularly want to start any rumors now, but I speculate that the absence of these rumors is yet another sign of the incoming caliph's strong public relations game. In any case, the 33-year-old Ahmad received pledges the same night his uncle died, and he took the title Al-Mu'tadid Billah, he who finds support in God. His ascension immediately elevated the loyal Badr in the military hierarchy, and he officially installed his secretary, Ubaidallah ibn Sulaiman, as wazir. This triumvirate will serve as the foundation of official power for the next decade, 
so it's worth taking the time to get to know these guys a little better. We don't really have very much on Bedr. I was surprised to learn that Bedr was a nickname. He's so closely associated with this caliph that our sources mainly refer to him as Bedr Mawla al-Mu'tadid or al-Mu'tadid's guy Bedr. He used to be a stable boy back in Talha's days and that is presumably how he first met our caliph. Bedr is mentioned alongside al-Mu'tadid since his earliest campaigns. He will go on to serve him faithfully throughout his reign and the two grew so close that the caliph honored his friend by taking Badr's daughter as a wife for his son. We know a little bit more about the new vizier, Ubaidallah ibn Sulaiman. Ubaidallah and al-Mu'tadid were sort of reprising roles their fathers had played 15 years earlier. See, Ubaidallah's father, Sulaiman, used to be Talha's secretary. He was in charge of military finances until one day in 877 when he was appointed wazir. Managing the state's revenue collection was a way more complicated operation than paying the troops. It's kind of a long story, but after Suleiman failed to properly discharge the duties of his new office, he was thrown into a cell, where he lived out the last five miserable years of his life. After Suleiman's disgrace, Talha allowed the caliph to pick the next vizier, so long as the man reported to Talha's secretary. The delightfully named Ibn Bulbul got the job. I know we've hopped around and introduced a bunch of different characters already, but this is the important part. Ibn Bulbul relied on two brothers to actually manage the taxation of Iraq for him. Ahmad and Ali ibn al-Furat were the well-educated scions of a prominent Baghdadi merchant family. Their father had even served in an official capacity before, so they had all the necessary connections to get the job done. The sons of Al-Furat, Banu Furat in Arabic, will vie for control of the bureaucracy down the line, and they will have a significant impact on the caliphate. It's a little too early to keep your eye on him, but Ali ibn Al-Furat specifically will play a decisive part in shoving the Abbasid Humpty Dumpty off the wall. Anyway, when Al-Mu'tadid came to power, Ibn Bulbul and the Banu Furat were all imprisoned and dispossessed. The caliphate's finances were in shambles. The treasury was empty and the people had already been taxed twice that year. See, Ibn Bulbul had been desperate to maximize his power after Talha's death, so he squeezed the people hard for revenue and spent it all in pursuit of influence. This was the mess Ubaidallah ibn Sulaiman was appointed in charge of. Not only did he have no idea how to do this job, but he also had the stark example of his father Sulaiman being in his exact same position, failing to deliver, then perishing in a dungeon as a result. I was lucky enough to come across a source that details court expenses at this period. It says that Ubaidallah needed 7,000 dinar every day to keep things ticking along, and 6,000 dinar at the start of each month on top of that. 
This works out to a little over 2.5 million dinar a year, if you're curious. So around 11 tons of gold. Allah did the reasonable thing. He released the Banu Furat from prison and restored them to their previous positions. They continued to serve in this capacity until they were replaced by the Banu Jarrah in 899. This happened through no fault of their own. The Banu Jarrah were another respected Baghdadi merchant family, a lot like the Banu Furat, except their Nestorian Christian background matched Ubaidullah's ancestry more closely. Each faction established its own set of alliances within the state's bureaucracy when it was in power, and over the next few decades, a fierce rivalry will develop between the two. It won't be a problem for a while, though. The ironclad relationship between the armies, the wazir, and the caliph made the state impervious, made the state impervious to divisions between lesser officials. Alright, now that we've introduced the incoming administration, let us turn our attention back to Al-Mu'tadid and discuss his reign in earnest. This martial caliph did not shy away from conflict, but he also possessed strong political instincts, and the combination made him a force to be reckoned with. He had a decisive impact throughout the realm, but his personal efforts were mainly exerted on the lands bordering Iraq specifically western Iran and Mesopotamia. I haven't done a great job of describing the challenges to Abbasid rule in the latter, so this is a welcome opportunity for us to delve a little deeper into them. I've alluded to a Karajite rebellion, Arab and Kurdish insurgencies, and increasingly autonomous local governors receiving support from hostile powers like the Tulunids. It's a messy scene that could do with some tidying up. We're going to restrict our discussion to the Abbasid reaction to three dynasties today. The Dulafids in the province of Jibal in western Iran, the Shaybanis in Jazeera or Mesopotamia, and the Sajids in Azerbaijan. We'll start with the Shaybanis in Mesopotamia. The crux of the issue in that province was Arab alienation. Their purge from the armies following the advent of the Turkish soldiers in the early 830s turned the Arabs against the Abbasids, and they began to regard their caliphate as a foreign, despotic regime. That's why the original al-Shaybani had such an easy time finding allies to support his mutinies against the state, first in Palestine, then in his home of Mesopotamia. As one of the last Arab commanders still serving in the Abbasid armies, he was a natural rallying point for Arab support after he turned against Samarra. This popularity is part of why he was reappointed to Mesopotamia, the idea being that his status as Abbasid governor would re-legitimize the caliphate in the eyes of the locals. Didn't exactly work out as planned. While he proved quite popular, the region's Arabs weren't a monolith, and many continued to raid the caliphate's lands. These were the guys our sources often referred to as Karajites, and they were such a threat to Iraq that Talha ordered one of his loyal lieutenants, the Turkish commander Ishaq ibn Kundaj, to take charge of Musad and use it as a base to counter their activities. Now, Musul is in Iraq, 
but it's also at the edge of what can be considered southern Mesopotamia. I'll post a map to clarify these boundaries on the episode's page at thecaliphs.com. The return of Turkish influence to the region immediately alienated al-Shaybani, who made common cause with other Karajite tribes against the incoming governor. Ibn Kundaj eventually bested his foes, but he failed to expand the caliphate's domain any further. Tolunid interference in favor of his rival, Ibn Abi Saj, led him to recognize their suzerainty, and Ibn Kundaj can't really be described as entirely on the Abbasid side after that. With Tulunid help, Ibn Kundaj ejected Ibn Abi Saj out of the region, then passed away a couple years later in 891. Okay, we're almost caught up to Al-Mu'tadid's reign. All we have left to do is refocus on the Shaybanis in the run-up to his ascension. After being beaten by Ibn Kundaj, they pretty much stayed in their lane, which was northern Mesopotamia. Isa ibn Shaykh al-Shaybani passed away in the mid-80s, and he bequeathed his son the tribe's leadership. From their capital in Amid, modern-day Diyarbakir in Turkey, the Shaybanis concentrated their efforts against the Armenians, whose king had just been recognized by the caliphate for the first time. Their new leader proved to be quite adept at command, and he met with great success in war. When Ibn Kundaj died in 891, he immediately seized on the opportunity and invaded southern Mesopotamia. In doing so, the Shaybani bit off a little bit more than he could chew. He triumphed over Ibn Kundaj's son, but his conquest of Musul gave him a border with the resurgent Abbasid Caliphate. Enter al-Mu'tadid. This assertive young caliph had no interest in sharing Iraq with anyone, and he immediately let the Shaybanis know he meant business. Mere months after taking the throne, he marched an army out to their lands and summoned their elders to come pay homage. Even though they were at the height of their power, they knew they stood no chance against the full force of the caliphate's armies. Many Shaybani nobles went to beg forgiveness from the caliph, bringing with them riches, weapons, and carriageites as tribute. These carriageites were probably the ones they had partnered up with to take Musul, so they were essentially turning in their collaborators. Al-Mu'tadib next took his armies to the parts of the region where these tribes typically roamed and unleashed ferocious attacks on any communities he came across. These areas had a majority Kurdish population, and they were decimated alongside the Arab tribes. The Kurds, like other peoples conquered by the Caliphate, had energetically resisted occupation whenever the circumstances allowed, and they had played a significant part in the regional upheaval since the onset of anarchy in Samarra. The area around the river Zab was depopulated, and the survivors of this devastating assault, Arab and Kurdish both, were forcibly relocated to the outskirts of Baghdad. When they were done with their ethnic cleansing, the caliph's forces entered Musul and restored it to Abbasid control. Al-Mu'tadid spent the next year in western Iran, and the Karajites used the opportunity afforded by his absence to mount a revenge attack. Their raid went beyond Musul, 
and if a line in Al-Tabari is to be believed, they may have even reached Samarra. These were not the Shaybanis, who confined themselves to their ancestral lands in northern Mesopotamia. These were the tribes and Kurds who had been left aggrieved by the Caliphate's heavy-handedness. The Caliph responded in kind before too long. As in 893, he demanded the tribes submit to his authority. Except this time, one of them refused to kowtow to Al-Mu'tadid. Hamdan ibn Hamdun, master of the fortified town of Mardin, was the only tribal chief to rebuff the caliph, so he now enjoyed his undivided attention. Al-Mu'tadid marched an army to Mardin, and Hamdan exercised the better part of valor and ran away. He left his son in charge of its defense, but upon seeing the caliph's armies, he immediately surrendered. Mardin's fortifications were destroyed, its treasures were confiscated, and its elites were arrested. We find reports of a similar campaign against another, smaller fort nearby that year too. Although al-Mu'tadid succeeded in subduing towns and settled communities in Mesopotamia, he still faced enmity from two local sources, the Kurds and the nomadic tribes. His solution to both these challenges came from an unexpected source, the recently defeated son of Hamdan ibn Hamdun. Hussein ibn Hamdan told al-Mu'tadid that he could take care of the most prominent agitator against the Abbasids, a Karajite by the name of Harun al-Shari, if the caliph promised to grant his father clemency and restore their clan to prominence. Hussein had strong connections with the region's Kurdish population, and it only took him a few months to defeat the elusive Karajite leader. This kicked off the long and fruitful partnership between the Abbasids and Hussein, a relationship that will lead to the birth of the Hamdanid dynasty a generation down the line. When the leader of the Shaybani tribe passed away in 898, Al-Mu'tadid decided it was a good time to extend Abbasid control, bringing him into conflict with them for the final time. Their new leader, grandson of the original Shaybani, put up some fierce resistance in his capital of Ahmed for a few months, but ultimately surrendered and asked the caliph to have mercy on his kin. With this, Al-Mu'tadid had regained Mesopotamia one of the caliphate's richest and most productive provinces. Let's move on to the Dulafids, the dynasty that had governed western Iran since they were empowered by Harun al-Rashid at the outset of the century. In Arabic, the province is mostly referred to as Jibal, or mountains, though I have come across the singular Jabal as well. The Dulafids collaborated with the Caliphate when it suited them, but they refused to submit completely. They managed to fight off Talha's invasions in the early 90s, so you'd think they were well-placed to resist his son as well when push came to shove, and that they'd be able to hold on to their autonomy. Well, that's not how things worked out. In 893, Al-Mu'tadid encouraged them to attack the upstart Rafa ibn Harthama in Rai, the Dulafids scored a costly victory, but succeeded in wresting the important city from him. A few months later, however, their elder passed away, and a bitter fight broke out between his sons 
over who would succeed him. The caliph wisely stayed out of it. Not only did he refuse to lend his weight to any party, but when Omar emerged as the Dulafid chief, Al-Mu'tadid neglected to congratulate or even recognize him. The very next year, the caliph came to the province at the head of a large army. He acknowledged Omar as governor of half of the Dulafid domain and gave the other half to his own son and heir. After their war with Rafa bin Harthama, an unexpected defeat at the hands of the Sajids, and all their recent infighting, the Dulafids were in no position to withstand the Caliphate's hostility. Omar accepted al-Mu'tadid's decree, even though it left him with too little land to sustain a grip on power. The very next year, we find a narration claiming that the Caliph expropriated a lot of money from the Dulafids, or requested more revenue from them. It doesn't contain much detail, but it suggests more evidence that the dynasty could no longer rebuff Abbasid demands. The year after that, in October of 896, Omar ibn Abidullah met with the wazir Ubaidullah ibn Sulaiman and the army chief Badr and submitted his domain to the caliphate. A portion of the Dulafids rallied behind Omar's brother Bekr, who promised to continue the fight for autonomy, but their resistance was negligible, and it only lasted a few short years before Bekr died of an illness in faraway Tabaristan. Thus al-Mu'tadid managed to regain the whole province simply by exerting political pressure. The final house we'll discuss are the Sajids. They don't quite fit into the theme. I include them more as a counterweight to the two vanquished dynasties. Unlike the Shaibanis and Dulafids, the Sajid dynasty did not share a border with the Caliphate, so al-Mu'tadid never engaged against it in person, which is probably a part of why it flourished during his reign. It got its start in the last years of Talha's tenure. After Ibn Kundaj defeated Muhammad ibn Abi Saj in the late 880s, the commander turned to the powerful Abbasid general for help. Talha had Ibn Abi Saj installed as governor of Azerbaijan. At first, he struggled to control a province infamous for having been home to some of the fiercest resistance known to the caliphate. The same near-impregnable fortress used by Babak for his struggle against the Abbasids throughout al-Ma'mun's two decades in charge was now occupied by a local rebel outfit, and they made Ibn Abi Saj's task of governing Azerbaijan impossible. After years of campaigning against them, a breakthrough finally came in 893. The rebel leader was tempted by a bunch of false promises made to him, and was betrayed as soon as he gave Ibn Abi Saj the opportunity. The remote fortress was demolished so nobody else could use it as a base from which to resist central authority ever again. I realize that victory didn't come effortlessly, but I still think it was more due to blind luck than anything. Muhammad ibn Abi Saj must have been blessed or something, because he got lucky again and again. In late 893, an earthquake destroyed Dabil, close to Armenia's modern capital of Yerevan, claiming 30,000 lives. The opportunistic governor immediately moved in with an army 
and made the city his new capital. The next year, one of his commanders defended his fledgling domain against a Dulafid incursion, dealing them a nasty defeat in the process. Ibn Abi Saj continued to grow his realm bit by bit, and in 898, Al-Mu'tadid officially recognized him as governor of Armenia and Azerbaijan. The dynasty won't be founded until its break with the Abbasids, but the Sajids ruled these lands from Muhammad's appointment in 889 until their demise in the 930s. It's clear that Al-Mu'tadid's commanding leadership was a massive boon to the Caliphate. His understanding of the limits and capabilities of the Abbasid armies allowed him to deploy them masterfully. He knew how to pick his battles and policies, and as a result made the recovery of Mesopotamia and western Iran look like child's play. These victories brought lots of revenue back to the state's coffers, allowing it to recover in even more ways than the ones we focused on today. We discussed the Caliphate's heartlands. But next time, we'll look a little further afield, to Egypt and Khurasan, and assess Al-Mu'tadid's performance overall, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (music) 